failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. Five years ago this Labor Day, two men were gunned down at the Rainbow Farms campground in Michigan, shot down by agents of law enforcement. Tom Tom Crosland and Raleigh Rome were the two gentlemen we're speaking about. The outrage of the story was beginning to break across this nation when 9-11 happened. Today, we'll hear from some of their friends and associates, and we'll remember five years later the murders of Tom Crosland and Raleigh Rome. Uh, I am speaking with Mr. Richard Lake of Drug Sense, Map Inc., and uh, a good friend of Tom and Raleigh, the two gentlemen gunned down five years ago by uh, agents of government for daring to grow marijuana in these United States. I'm amazed that in the 21st century, this war against the marijuana plant continues. Uh, please tell us about Tom and Raleigh. I think it's important to remember that they certainly didn't start out to be martyrs. And ultimately, the things that most people remember is the standoff and the fact that they were shot, killed. Uh, folks don't... Uh, a lot of folks don't really know about what happened at Rainbow Farm, largely because it was Memorial Day weekend and 9-11 uh, happened just a few days later, pushed the story off of uh, the news. And consequently, uh, it's not a story that's well known. Tell us about Tom, Tom Croson. What, what was he like? Uh, what was he trying to do? Well, he certainly was a friendly, outgoing guy. What he was trying to do is make a statement, uh, stand up for his libertarian ideals, help reform the marijuana laws, and do whatever he could in that direction. But he also did a lot of other public uh, things. He was certainly a giving guy, charitable in his community. He was generally well-liked by those who know, knew him and knew what he was doing. He was a pretty outgoing guy, actually. Summarize, if you will, please, the shootout, what caused the shootout and, and, and your first reaction to, to that event five years ago this week. I learned uh, early on in that year at uh, talking to folks who pulled me aside at the Ed Armour Hash Bash that things were not going well at the farm and that some people were afraid and distancing themselves from Tom and Raleigh and the farm. It really became, uh, for Tom and Raleigh, uh, a feeling of isolation, a feeling that that the law was closing in on them, that ultimately uh, 
something bad might come out of it. Uh, it was not only on Tom Raleigh's part, but certainly on people that were close to him. By Labor Day weekend, it all fell apart. Uh, pressure was uh, put on. He was supposed to make a court appearance. They were supposed to make court appearances. They failed to do so. They decided to that if the farm was going to be taken, there would be nothing there. They started to burn the buildings. Once the fires erupted, uh, the police came in, and ultimately FBI. There was a standoff. I think that Tom and Raleigh really believed that their response to what was happening was that no matter what happened to them, they, the state would, was not going to get a property of value. And they acted on that and things escalated from that point. And ultimately, uh, well, you can believe this, whatever versions of the story you want. I personally believe that deadly force was used against Tom and Raleigh when there was other options. Those in law enforcement and even a few within the drug reform community say that Tom and Raleigh stepped over the line when they picked up weapons. And in response to that thought, I can only state that each year, every 20 seconds, a total of 1.6 million Americans have their rights taken away, their constitutional, civil, and human rights stolen, taken away by hypocrites wearing guns and badges. Next, we hear from another friend of Tom and Raleigh, Melody Kerr. Well, I first heard of the final siege. It was Labor Day weekend, as you know, and they had been planning to have a camp out or some sort of gathering, and and I had called a week or two before then and talked to Raleigh, and he said, yeah, everything was still on. But then in that final week before Labor Day, I had called again, and the phone was disconnected or no one was answering, and so I kind of thought that everything was just was called off because that Friday night I had been somewhere else. I came home late, and there was a message on my answering machine from Trina Moss, another activist who had been protesting with me that summer. So I called her first thing in the morning. She told me what was going on, and and uh, I just thought, I don't know if there's anything I can do about this, but somebody's got to be there. You know, it just seemed to me like, you know, after that I turned on the news and I did hear a little blurb here and there, and it, it seemed like what I was hearing in the media just, you know, like some drug-crazed, people were holed up in this campground and I knew that there was much more to the story and I knew that it wasn't ever going to get out but he friendly was there to hear it so you know I, I told Trina I think I got to go there I, I don't know what I can do but I have to go and and she said well I told Bill that's her husband that I wouldn't and uh, she said she was going to flip a coin and and heads we and she's going to pray and if tell Jesus flip coin and heads were going and tails were not and it came up heads, and 
I just laughed and said, well, he knew I was going anyway, so he figured he'd better send you with me. And down we went. It's hard to recount what exactly went down and the loss of these two lives, but please tell us of those two days. Uh, well, we were there, you know, that whole weekend, and the authorities kept saying, well, we're not going to go in there, you know, we, we have all this time, all the time in the world, we're not going to force anything, we're going to wait for them to come out. And so that was kind of what we thought was going to happen, and a lot of people stopped by, you know, once the FBI was involved, locals kept stopping by this encampment that we had on Route 60, and because you know, at least two dozen activists showed up before the end of the weekend. And, and before the whole thing was done, there were at least a 100 people that were in and out of there, um, actually, as part of the encampment. And there were several hundred people that were in and out just stopping, offering encouragement. Locals would bring us food, water, medical supplies. And they just kept saying, you know, as soon as, after the guys were gone, they kept saying, as soon as the FBI came in, we knew... We knew that they weren't getting out of there. So those two days, we were hopeful, we were frightened, but we were still kind of hopeful that it, it might work out. You know, they might come out peacefully. Um, the night time was killed. It was threatening to rain. Several of us were down at the, uh, at the press line. The, uh, the police had set up their headquarters in an old school that was sort of kitty corner across Route 60 from where the protesters were camped. And on a back road on the other side of that school is the line that they drew for the press. And it was still about a mile and a half away from the farm itself. So really all we know of what happened there is what we've been told by authorities. That night we were down. We had seen an ambulance go in, and we didn't really know what was going on, so we went down to the press line and sort of stood there with our signs for a while and stared back and forth at the police. And, and uh, you know, of course, they weren't saying anything, and it was starting to rain, so a couple of us went back to to the encampment to roll up some windows and get some things undercover. And while we were there, the neighbor to the encampment had brought out a TV with, like, you know, 100 feet of extension cord or whatever so that we could keep updated on what the media was saying. And uh, as we were back there covering things up for the rain on the TV, they announced that they had just killed Tom Croslin. And so we, of course, we were very upset. We went back to the to the press line and told everyone else. And and as this whole thing was happening, it it all sort of came down at once. We got back there. We told them Tom was dead. And, you know, there was, of course, reaction there. His family was there. Close friends were there. And just as we came back and broke the news, the rainstorm broke. And it just, it was crazy. I mean, you have to realize how high emotions were running at the time and how you saw significance in everything when you're in that situation. It just, there was lightning horizon to horizon. It was like, it was apocalyptic. It was like God was saying, this is wrong, you know. And there were a few tense moments there where there was a lot of anger. People were yelling and screaming. Some people wanted to 
rush the barricade, you know, and there were others of us who were like, well, what good is that going to do, you know, that's, that's not going to help anything here, but people were just so angry. And uh, there was one young girl who worked at the store there who just, all, all I really remember of that night, I mean, what I remember most vividly is just her screaming over and over, what about Robert, what about Robert? Before we hear from another friend of Rainbow Farm just what happened on those two days, I want to backtrack just a second and remind the listener that these men were busted for growing a few marijuana plants. Agents of the state were taking away their property. They had already taken away Tom and Raleigh's son, Robert. This is Adam Brook. At which point, you know, Tom is dead and Raleigh's still in the house. They started negotiating with Raleigh, and he wanted to see his son, and he made a deal with the police that they would bring his son to the property at 7 o'clock in the morning the following morning. And um, that morning, while uh, getting ready to uh, wait, meet his son, to see his son, somehow the, the house caught fire, and Raleigh ran out of the house and took the dog with him, and he had a rifle with him, and we're not sure, but Raleigh doesn't seem to really be threatening in any manner with his rifle. He, the dog got caught on a leash on the porch, and Raleigh put the gun down, supposedly, and, you know, he never pointed this weapon at anybody. However, while he was running around and a little confused with the dog, the Michigan State Police had rolled a, an armored car, an armored carrier-type thing, into the front yard of the house, and one of them opened the hatch, and Raleigh had the rifle in his hand. And when one of them opened the hatch and popped his head up, one of the snipers in the trees shot Raleigh because his agent was exposed and at risk because Raleigh had a gun. And that's how Raleigh got killed. Now, there was some discrepancies in some of the uh, reports that some of these individual officers wrote during the killing of Raleigh, so there is pending a, uh, there's a lawsuit actually been filed and uh, currently in the courts on a wrongful death suit pertaining to Raleigh, um, but uh, that's because some of the things that the police say didn't add up, but uh, basically that's how they were each killed. One was uh, killed by the state police and one was killed by the FBI. They just had enough. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, I would say so. I, I, I mean, I knew Tom pretty good, and nobody ever thought that Tom would want to hurt, uh, hurt anybody or hurt himself uh, over pot. I mean, that that just seems way out there, you know. Um, when when I first heard what was going down and that there was a standoff at the farm, um, and, and when I, you know, kind of deemed this the Waco of weed. Um, it, it really, to me, was just as crazy as that. I mean, this is an opportunity where if these people really wanted Tom and Raleigh in custody, they could have had them. They didn't need to uh, end up in a standoff with them. And uh, if they would have just left Tom alone to do what he was doing, he wasn't hurting anybody. Um, but the government has a way of twisting things and making things look so that uh, in the end they're justified in doing what they do. This, Like you said, this was about two guys deciding that they weren't going to take it anymore. And I'll be honest, I knew them pretty well, and it was really about one guy deciding he wasn't going to take it any longer and his lover following because 
Raleigh really was a follower, not a leader. And uh, this was really about Tom deciding that he, he wasn't going to take any shit from these people. Next, we hear from another good friend of Tom and Raleigh, Trina Moss. Uh, Trina, tell us, how does it feel now five years later uh, after these, these two gentlemen were gunned down? It feels to me just as wrong as it did five years ago. T- tell us about your association with Tom and Raleigh. Um, we were fairly frequent campers um, in 2000. I think we went to every single festival they had that year. The only thing we didn't make was the Halloween party. Um, we were working together to try to change the reform the marijuana laws in Michigan. And we were gathering signatures for the PRA, which was a personal responsibility amendment. In the years that have ensued, I, I understand that many of those who were close to Tom and Raleigh have kind of um, stepped back, stepped out of the fray, so to speak. Um, have, have you noticed um, that occurring, that people have uh, walked away from the battle, so to speak? Yeah, they scattered. They were afraid, and many of them have scattered and and have uh, <laughs> have walked away. Maybe... For a time, they're just regrouping and they'll come back, hopefully. Well, I, I know that uh, Michigan, uh, several of the cities have passed laws uh, lowering the penalties, uh, uh, taking some of the bite out of these, these drug laws. But uh, what, what's your feeling as far as the current day? Uh, well, I think we're progressing. Uh, we tried twice at a statewide initiative, and that didn't work, so we started working on these smaller ones, and they're they're doing great. Whenever we manage to get one on the ballot, they're all voted in. The people are willing. It's the politicians that are a problem. Kind of summarize to uh, my listeners who Tom and Raleigh were. There were two very brave individuals that stood up for what they believed in. If, if you will, summarize what they meant to the community and, and what their loss means to the community. Tom was very charitable in the community. And within Rainbow Farm itself, a lot of the people that came there were considered, uh, how do you say, uh, misfits within um society I guess at large and um, Tom took him in and fed him helped him out gave him a place to stay there on the campground and in turn they worked hard for him he was a good guy and um, his presence will be missed in a lot of different ways if we can learn still from the actions of Tom and Raleigh and uh, carry those lessons learned into the future define what those uh, lessons learned are? Um, I would say <laughs> try to do something about this crazy hypocrisy that we have in this, and supposedly we're out spreading democracy throughout the world, but yet here at home somebody can't even try to change the marijuana laws, a God-given plant. That's wrong. That's mo- that is hypocrisy, and that is not... That's not the democratic process. We're supposed to be able to change and reform our own laws. And it's just one great big joke. This is Dean Kuypers uh, calling in on the Dean Becker Show. And uh, 
I am the deputy editor at Los Angeles City Beat, we're a weekly newspaper in LA, and just published in June the uh, book Burning Rainbow Farm, How a Stoner Utopia Went Up in Smoke. And uh, we are at this time recognizing uh, five years time since uh, the uh, owners uh, of this rainbow farm, Mr. Uh, Tom Croslin, Mr. Raleigh Rome, were gunned down by uh, law enforcement officials. Please uh, summarize this story for our listeners. Yeah, Tom and Raleigh ran a place, uh, their, hemp, their hemp festivals at uh, Rainbow Farm. They had two of them. They were called Hemp Aid and Roach Roast. Those were on the Memorial Day and Labor Day of every year. They ran those between uh, 96 and 2001, roughly. Um, the local prosecutor there threatened them with forfeiture. He was uh, pretty intent on taking Rainbow Farm uh, if he could bust them for any kind of a uh, drug crime. And he finally did get them for growing some weed in 2001, moved to take the farm. And in the fall of 2001, uh, when the guys were supposed to go to their first court date, instead they burned the place to the ground. And it turned into a standoff. And in that standoff, Tom and Raleigh were both uh, were both killed. The things that happened to these two were pretty heavy-handed. I mean, that uh, the government uh, has a pretty deep tool bag for dealing with uh, drug crime these days, and and unfortunately, they could only see Tom and Raleigh as drug criminals instead of drug activists, which is what they were. They operated in the open about everything in their lives, and uh, they eventually they ended up closing their legal business, which was Rainbow Farm Campground. Uh, taking their son, putting him in foster care, putting Tom and Raleigh in uh, in jail, and uh, and threatening them with perhaps decades under mandatory minimums uh, of jail time, then uh, for, uh, moved to forfeit the farm to, or seize the farm through forfeiture, and in the end, when they resisted these things, ended up killing them. So a pretty heavy price to pay for trying to change the legally trying to change the pot laws in the state of Michigan. Are the ideas of Tom and Raleigh being brought forward, uh, is there still some uh, harvest from the seeds they sow? Well, I, I think there is, of course. Um, the, uh, the, the, the road, they were already pretty much well on the way towards, uh, towards getting their messages out. While they were still alive, um, they had a ballot initiative that was moving forward with a pretty good group that had changed... Uh, done some effective constitutional change in Michigan before, um, and they, the place was the, pretty much the center of you know, hemp and, and marijuana activism in the state of Michigan at that time. But afterwards, um, I think there was a, a bit of a recoiling, actually, in the state. Uh, the, people were pretty scared by what happened to them, because these guys were, like I said, they were operating in the open. They were... Uh, pillars of the local community, they were philanthropists, people liked them, they understood what they were doing because they were operating in the open, they, they talked to their neighbors and they, they made their plans public uh, and then they were, they were gunned down in the way that they were, people were pretty horrified and a lot of the people in the, the county there where they were and, and surrounding areas were also pretty scared by the fact that they took their child um, ostensibly for um, you know, smoking marijuana in front of them. That was the excuse given, anyways. And uh, that really put the fear in a lot of people. So it took a couple of years to come back, but it has come back. Uh, Michigan now, uh, I think in the last year or two, they've passed four different cities, have passed medical marijuana ordinances or, um, 
you know, lowest priority ordinances where they make marijuana bust the lowest priority for local police. So I think they're now starting to pick up some steam again. Okay, and uh, you have been uh, on the road, so to speak, uh, promoting your new book. What has been the response from the uh, corporate media? Uh, you know, the, it's, from the corporate media so far, it's been pretty, um, it's been pretty overwhelming. Um, people are astonished to hear this story because, of course, they didn't hear it because of 9/11. Uh, this Rainbow Farm shooting happened, as we've been saying, five years ago, on September 3rd and 4th. Uh, that's a, a week exactly before 9/11 happened, and when that happened, it just swept it out of the news. So, um, as I've been doing my tours and as I've been making appearances in different places like Seattle and, uh, and talking to people in New York and going to Michigan and and, uh, and Indiana and Ohio, even places that are close by where Rainbow Farm happened, a lot of people are uh, amazed that they hadn't heard this story and that there wasn't more of an outcry about it. Um, I think that perhaps um, one of the things that that worked against them in this uh, instance was uh, the fact that the the way it went at the end. Actually, I think that the the idea that Tom and Raleigh were going to um, you know defend their property with weapons, um, even though there were people lining the streets, you know, on the way into Rainbow Farm, saying holding up signs saying you know don't kill our friends, uh, Rainbow Farm wants it, you know we want a peaceful resolution of this. Uh, people were in support of Tom and Raleigh. I think they're also the national organizations that deal with marijuana reform and uh, drug law reform. Uh, maybe uh, didn't look on that so favorably once the guys uh, picked up weapons and decided they would take matters into their own hands. I want to say once again, these men were on their own property carrying weapons deemed appropriate by the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution, and they were shot down when they were surprised by these intruders on their property. Our first uh, voice we heard this evening was Richard Lake. He uh, helps head up the group Map Inc., uh, or Drug Sense, as they're otherwise known, who accumulates uh, thousands upon thousands of news articles about the drug war. They have a large stash of information there about Rainbow Farm. I'm going to close out with some comments from Richard. Your, your thoughts, sir. When will the truth win this battle? I don't think it's going to be easy. I've been at this since the 70s uh, in one form or another. I've seen ups and downs. Uh, we, we're not going to win this uh, easily. I think it's going to be incremental. This is in the United States, this is not like alcohol prohibition. There's no constitutional amendment to repeal. It's going to be incremental, step by step, small steps, uh, city by city, state by state, uh, and ultimately at the federal level, but it's not going to be easy. And what we try to do at... Uh, Mapic.org is is get all the news clippings and provide them to folks in a fashion that allows what we call one-click response letters to the editor. And uh, so far, we've had uh, 
22,000 letters published on our side that we attribute to our efforts. I know it's hard to go public with your feelings about the drug war, but the best way you can do so is to write a letter to the editor. Please visit Map Inc. That's M-A-P-I-N-C dot O-R-G. They'll teach you how to write those letters. I wrote perhaps a dozen letters to the editor before one was accepted for publication. It's worth the effort. I've now had some 70 such letters published. Many of these letters contain some of the following words. There is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data. No reality involved in this drug war. It is a sham. We have been duped. The drug lords run both sides of this equation. Visit our website, nprohibition.org. Prohibido is Doc Ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition. The Century of Lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Our engineer, Philip Cuffin.